I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the text we will be looking at this morning, John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 19, but I invite you to back up just a few verses to verse 9. I want to get a little more context in here. We're looking at John 12, beginning in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And now would you take it and plant it deeply within us? Would you instruct us and strengthen us by it? Make it effective in our lives, Lord. We know that it will never return void. And so we look to you to do that work as we consider what your word says to us today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is Palm Sunday, as we've mentioned. And it's the day in the Christian year that we mark the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem before the Passover. We call this the triumphal entry, because the crowds, at least in this moment, at least for this time, honored him in a kingly way, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, which means, in essence, save us. In those moments, the crowds were ascribing to Jesus the messianic words of some of the Psalms, one of which we read this morning, Psalm 118. They're called the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And these are Psalms that have a lot of Messianic language in them. And so these were songs that they were very familiar with. They sang particularly uh, during the Feasts of the Year, songs that they would have all known, and they proclaimed these words over Jesus. It's a a beautiful picture in the life of Jesus. It's one that uh, is celebrated because it, for a moment, whether their intentions were right or not, and John gives us some insight in this text that even the disciples didn't understand all that was going on. And yet, as we saw in our study of Genesis last week, God is working through providence that even when we as his people don't get it, we don't understand He is still working. And so they were able to then look back and see how they were a part of fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah and and other prophecies, the prophecies from the Psalms. They were a part of this whole unfolding saga that they weren't even completely aware of. This is one of the few 
episodes in the life and the ministry of Jesus that all four Gospels account for. This, this, account, this, this episode is in all four of the Gospel accounts. This Easter season, however, I want us to look at John's Gospel the next two Sundays. John's Gospel is unique from the other Gospels. The other three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels because they follow kind of the same pattern or synopsis in the life of Jesus. They follow the same trajectory. And John tells the same story, but in a different way. He takes a different approach in how he organizes his gospel. It's more philosophical. He talks in terms of themes. It's, it's one of the ways that, or one of the reasons rather, that you may have this as part of your own testimony, or you may have encouraged someone else a lot of times for Westerners and in particular Americans, when people show interest in Christ and they say, where do I begin in terms of what to study in Scripture? Many people, and I've encouraged many people to do this, start in John. Start in John. The opening words in John uh, bring in so much about who Jesus is, dealing with themes of Jesus is the Word, the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life, he's the light of the world. We see all of these things through John. And one of the other unique things about his gospel is that here we are just just a little past halfway in his gospel, and we're already into the Passion Week. So he spends nearly half of his writing on the the final week of Jesus. And so this is significant in terms of what he gives his attention to. Another thing John does for us is he gives us a thesis statement. He tells us why he wrote the book, why he wrote the gospel. And he, in, in, the, in, in chapter 20, says, in essence, Jesus did many things that haven't been recorded, but these are written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote the gospel, and it's what we ought to keep in mind, that these are written that you would believe, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. This image of the triumphal entry uh, for us is hard to separate from the crucifixion because we're so familiar with the story. And so we look at this and we, we, we know what's coming, but the people didn't understand. Jesus, of course, had told his disciples and even they didn't understand what was coming. And so when we see the honor and the praise that's shown to him in these moments, and then the juxtaposition of him riding on a donkey, it seems kind of strange for us. Again, John tells us that they didn't realize what was happening at the time, that prophecy was literally being fulfilled right before their very eyes. And it's safe to say that few, if any, in the crowd not only understood this, that they even had the right intentions in their heart. We know from other passages of Scripture and history that what they really wanted was deliverance from Roman occupation. And that's not a bad thing. Who of us would want to live under an occupying force in our own country or even in another country? And yet this intent of their heart was quickly flushed out because these same people in a very short amount of time would go from honoring him as Messiah and king to shouting, crucify him. But keep in mind that in this moment... Even in this triumphal entry, the plan and the purpose of God, long foretold, uh, long ago foretold in Zechariah 9, was uh, that Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
would arrive in humility. This was not a mistake. This was not just for show. I want to make this very clear that it was not a bad thing that Jesus was humble, that he came in humility. In our modern culture, we, we no longer hold humility in high regard uh, as we once did. Um, it, it seems less and less so that we seem to be more enamored by confidence than we do by genuine humility. I think this is made clear if we look in our government, if we look in the corporate world, if we look in uh, what is held in high regard uh, for our leaders, we want someone who is confident. We don't look at humility the way that we once did. And of course, the church is not immune to this trend either. And it seems that over and over, more and more stories of abuses of power and misuse of people uh, seem to be continually emerging uh, that, uh, from the church scene that pastors and ministry leaders are doing these things. We want our leaders to be confident, and yet our Savior came in humility. Let me say this, that confidence isn't a bad thing. It's where the confidence is placed. As a pastor, and particularly as one who preaches and teaches, I want to preach and teach with confidence that this is true. I don't want to be mushy or wishy-washy, but I want, I want to be sure that you understand, but I want to be sure that in my heart I understand that my confidence is not in myself, it is in Christ. And the reason that I can proclaim with confidence the truth of the gospel is because of who He is, and it has nothing to do with me. And so there is, uh, there, confidence isn't the problem. It is, the, it is where we place our confidence, that our confidence should never be placed in the flesh It should be placed instead in God, and humility ought to be the mark of the Christian. So Jesus was not pretending. He was not temporarily doing it for show. He was demonstrating to us that there is a different way, a way that doesn't make sense to us. And I talk about our own current day, but as Solomon said, there's really nothing new under the sun. Jesus, when he was on earth, said to his disciples that the Gentiles lorded over them, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, God's plan from the beginning, from before time even began, was the way of humility and that he would come putting on flesh, condescending, being born even as a baby, poor and helpless, that he might make us rich. That's what Paul wrote, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Or you think of Philippians 2, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You see, the plan of God, as revealed in Zechariah, as revealed in Isaiah, as revealed in the Psalms, all of these prophecies about the Messiah indicated that He would come in an upside-down way to show the splendor of His glory. 
God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Instead, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is where our confidence is to be found. So it's not a trick. It's not a mistake. It wasn't something just to be a teaching point. The way of Jesus is foolishness to the world because the way up is down. So don't miss this beauty on our Palm Sunday celebration. The beauty that is the splendor of our humble King. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, seen and unseen, rulers, dominions, powers, kings. He's the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from the dead. So in everything, He is the head and the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him, to reconcile to Himself all things. This is the splendor of our humble King. And so look with me now in verse 12 of John 12, and we see he writes the next day. This indicates that the day is now Sunday. It's why we celebrate Palm Sunday on Sunday is because this happened on Sunday. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for Passover. He's left Bethany. This is where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And John distinguishes between the crowds. He shows us that there's a convergence of two crowds. The smaller crowd that he mentions in verse 17 was the one that was with him, that had been traveling with him. Of course, it grew in size following the resurrection of Lazarus because all of those there became suddenly interested and wanted to see what else Jesus would do. But this larger crowd, the one that he calls large or great, is the crowd that's coming out from Jerusalem to meet him as he comes up and over the Mount of Olives into the city. Now, when we talk about large and great, that's kind of relative to what is in our imagination. I don't know what number you might be thinking, but it was helpful for me to do a little history, a little digging on this to try and figure out what numbers are we talking about. In 60 AD or around 60 AD, the, the historian Josephus, so just you know, a couple of, uh, a few years later after the time of Jesus, uh, he estimated at one Passover there were 2.7 million people. Now, even if Josephus's numbers were way off, let's say he was twice, you know, it, it was only half of what he indicated still. Over a million people, that's a lot of people. And while not all of the people coming out would have, not the entire city would have come out, we're still talking about a really, really big crowd. Many of the people who were there that would have come to Jesus, we might imagine, are those from his hometown from his region. So Jesus was born in, in, in Bethlehem, but he grew up, as you might remember, in Nazareth. And then his ministry took place in the area of or the region of Galilee, north of Jerusalem. And so all of those people from that region were very familiar with who Jesus was. They knew him. They knew of his ministry. Um, he had traveled away and, and had gone down south of Jerusalem and then was now coming back up. And so these would have been people who wanted to go see Jesus especially after hearing the news that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. This was the thing that really lit the spark 
um, coming up on this time of Passover and upon the Passion Week, that the whole city at this point was in an uproar and it was all about Jesus. To use modern language, we would say Jesus is trending at this point. He is what everyone is talking about. He is the hot issue. And John indicates in, in the previous chapter, chapter 11 and verse 56, he says, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? So it's what everybody was talking about. They were all looking for Jesus to see when and if he would come. They want to see him, and this frustrates and confounds the religious leaders. You get the sense in this passage that we read how frustrated they were. It was to the point they were willing to kill Lazarus to remove the evidence that he had been raised from the dead. This is how badly they wanted to squash the ministry of Jesus. Again, if we looked back in, in chapter 11, we would see in verse 57 that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given an order that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they were to turn him in that they might arrest him because they wanted to kill him. And now they were willing to do the same thing to Lazarus. So the desperation that had that it was consuming them to the point that they were so willing to murder and while we might look at them and think, never me, we ought to be warned by this. That this is, not, this is not the fruit of them waking up one morning and deciding that they want to be in power and control. This is from years of unchecked pride and greed that has grown in their hearts to the point that it has consumed them. And none of us is immune to this. Many a man and woman has fallen because of unchecked pride and unchecked greed in their own life. And so we are called then to come back and look and consider our Savior and the splendor of our humble King. He not only instructs us how to live, He shows us how to live. In Luke 14, 11, Jesus said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. After washing the disciples' feet, he turned to them and said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example that you also should do just as I have done. Humility is a hallmark of the one who follows Christ, give me someone with humility over someone who knows all the answers any day of the week to partner with and work with. I would rather have someone who is genuinely humble that we could learn and grow together than someone who has all of the answers and knows all of their theology and yet lacks humility. Humility ought to be the mark of every Christian. In verse 13, we see the people take and wave palm branches as Jesus comes into the city. So all four Gospels tell this account, but it's John's Gospel alone that tells us what kind of branch this was. The others just refer to branches or greenery uh, that they laid down or waved. So we can thank John then that we have Palm Sunday. He's the one who tells us these were palm branches. Palm branches have been used by the people of God all the way back to Leviticus that when, when that was recorded at the time 
time of Moses. Uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles, they were uh, told to gather palm branches and wave them. And then over time, we see palm branches used in the celebration of the Feast of, uh, of Tabernacles, the Feast of Dedication, the Passover. And then in more modern times, they had become used even by uh, the secular Romans as a sign of victory. And so we see in archaeology uh, palm fronds engraved or, or minted, stamped on coins that are found. These were signs of victory. And so this is what the people had in mind. They were honoring Jesus as victorious, triumphant, as he then entered the city. And they shouted out words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You recognize those words, hopefully, from the psalm we read this morning, that Hallel psalm, Psalm 118. It's where it comes from. This was a song they would have been singing together. The word Hosanna is Hebrew, and it literally means give salvation now. It means save us. But it's not a plea of someone who's stuck in a pit saying, save me, help me. But it's rather an acclamation or a proclamation of the one who saves, the one who has been victorious. And this is what the people were shouting out from these songs. These songs, as we mentioned, were songs that were familiar. They were the favorite songs. These were the amazing graces, the, the, the songs everybody knew. Once somebody started singing it, you know all the words, you know all the tunes. These were the psalms that the people knew well. And they were messianic. They, had, they were full of messianic prophecy of the one who would come to save. And so as we read, in, for example, in Psalm 118, Verse 22, you would have recognized this morning that that line, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, knowing that this indeed points to the Messiah, to Jesus. So the people, in essence, with their words, were crowning Jesus as king. They were claiming him to be the king. That's what they said. Even the king of Israel, they they add in these words And so regardless of their intention, regardless of what was in their heart, none of the gospel readers or writers tell us exactly what the intentions of their heart was. We uh, or were uh, we see God sovereignly, providentially administering his um, his plan through his people. Through these people, willing, uh, willing or not, they were the ones, even though they may have been looking for uh, uh, Jesus to overthrow the Roman occupation. They were witnessing the very words of prophecy fulfilled, even though their motives may have been mixed. Now, we can relate to what the people wanted. We can all look and say, yes, it's a good thing to, to, to not want an oppressive government. No one wants to live under tyrannical rule. But their biggest problem was not the Roman government any more than our biggest problem uh, being any form of oppressive government Their biggest problem and our biggest problem, of course, is our own sin, which is why the gospel is such good news in that through the life and death of Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins. This is what they needed to be saved from. They thought they needed to be saved from an oppressive government, and they didn't realize how oppressed they were under their own sins. Their greatest need and our greatest need, even in a time of worldwide pandemic, is to be saved and forgiven from our sins. And so hear this call. 
This Palm Sunday call to turn to Christ and to put your hope and confidence in Him and to confess Him as Savior and Lord that you may need say, that you may be saved because that's what you and I need. We need a Savior. We need to be saved from our own sins. And this is the salvation that Jesus brings. Verse 14 says that He comes on a young donkey, just as it is written. This is referring back to Zechariah 9, 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Messiah comes in humility, bringing salvation. He, in humility, comes and brings the redemption of the people. He brings peace to us with gentleness. And this is the opposite of what they or we would expect from a victorious king. We want someone to come in and um, with a sword conquer. Not with the cross. The cross is foolishness. How does that conquer? It makes us scratch our heads. That's exactly what Paul says, that the cross to the world, to those who are not being saved, is foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The phrase rejoice greatly, uh, you don't see that in Zechariah 9. This is uh, uh, what the people would do often because the teachers did this. They would join themes from other passages to show the common theme in Scripture. And so this is taken from Isaiah 40, verse 9. The words fear not replace the words rejoice greatly. Listen to what Isaiah says in, 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 in 40, verse 9 about what kind of Messiah would, what kind of ruler the Messiah would be. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the splendor of our humble king, that he comes as a good shepherd to gently lead us. This is not only the way in which he displays his glory, It also is an example for how we too are to lead. Humility, again, ought to be the mark of every Christian. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. This is what ought to be portrayed in our lives. And then John adds in verse 16 that he and the other disciples, they didn't understand. And it wasn't until after he was glorified that they were able to look back and to see and to understand. Now, it would be easy for us to look down our noses at them and to say, oh, they have little faith. They missed it. How could they have missed it? But instead, we ought to look at this and draw comfort for all of the things that we miss. And friends, there are many things that all of us miss. We're going to be able to look back one day and realize that we miss things. We were blind to things. We didn't understand things. We don't know it all. Don't, don't ever get that sense that you do, that you've got it all right, that you've got all your theology right, that you under, understand everything right. There are things that we're wrong on. 
And so we ought to draw comfort from the fact that God still used his disciples. He still loved his disciples. He still cared for his disciples, even though they didn't get it. And we ought to do as they did. Look to the word, the word made flesh, and put our confidence in the word, in Jesus, the word made flesh. Put our confidence in him and not in our own abilities. He, we, we're told as well that the crowd, the only reason they were there, or, or one of the reasons they were there was because of Lazarus. They, they were just enamored by the fact that he had been raised from the dead. And again, an important lesson, both in what we might miss as the disciples missed it, as well as being like the crowd there with mixed motives, that in spite of all of our mixed motives, in spite of all of the things that we might miss along the way, that God still sovereignly works and His plan still continues and He still works in spite of our missing things, in spite of our mixed motives. He still works in spite of our sin. He still accomplishes His purposes. And what a comfort that is to us that our hope is built on the One whose wisdom and grace never fail. Closing out our text, he writes of the Pharisees. They said to each other, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It pictures the factions within the party of the Pharisees as they turn on one another. Uh, They're so frustrated, they're ready to eat each other alive. In the near future, as the disciples were sent out after Jesus ascended into heaven, They were, as Acts tells us, turning the world upside down. And again, the Pharisees found themselves in just a fury uh, as they were trying to figure out what to do with the disciples. And one of their own, Gamaliel, said to them, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And indeed, they were opposing God. Jesus would continue on riding on the donkey as the humble king, riding into Jerusalem only to be handed over to the Romans to be crucified. But even in their opposition against God, they could not thwart his plan. For his plan all along was for Jesus to lay down his very life, that through his death and resurrection, the Messiah would reign uh, through his kingly work in dying. That this is our king, this is our humble king, the one who would come and die for the sins of another. One day, Jesus will return. And upon entering our world again, we will see Him as John depicts in Revelation 19, where we read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our King. He is both humble and glorious. He is both gentle and victorious. May we worship Him and give Him praise for the great salvation that that is ours that He has accomplished and granted to us in that for our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son to come in humility, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to lay down His life for Your children, for us. While we were Your enemies, You sent Your Son to die for us, to die in our place, to deal with the sin that we could not deal with, to pay the price of Your wrath, Your holy wrath, Your righteous wrath against our sin, so that now we can be considered righteous. Indeed, we are righteous, clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus, that we might come before You boldly, knowing that You have forgiven all of our sins, that as far as the east is from the west, so far have You removed our sins from us. You've cast them away. Father, it's beyond our imagination, the grace and mercy that is shown to us in Christ. And for that, we give You thanks. Would You now take the glory of our humble King and fill our hearts and our minds with this glory that we might be so captivated by Christ that you would erase our anxiety and our fear, that you would erase our anger and our depression, that you would give us joy in the truth and the knowledge of all that Christ is for us. And would you hold us close and be near to us in this time we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.